welcome to the Empathic Mastery Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Moore, and I'm so glad you're here. This is a place where we talk about what it means to be highly sensitive and empathic, how this impacts all aspects of our lives, and we explore tools, resources, and solutions so we can shift from absorbing all the thoughts, feelings, and energy of the world around us to being beacons for calm, love, and healing. Hey there, everybody. It's Jen from the Empathic Mastery Show. And today, I am really excited to be having a juicy, juicy conversation about one of my favorite topics, boundaries, with Kathleen Awigon. Kathleen is the founder of Bridges of Peace, providing facilitation, training, communication coaching, and mediation services throughout the U.S. and the world. She is the host of the weekly 30-minute podcast, Co-Creating Peace, which provides concepts and easily implemented tools for conscious communication and conflict transformation. The focus of Kathleen's work is to help communities, organizations, and individuals become empowered to fulfill their greatest potential through dialogue, negotiation, and collaboration. This often involves bringing seemingly discordant voices together in collaborations that result in mutual understanding, increased wisdom, and growth. Kathleen, welcome. That bio just is so inspiring. Oh, thank you, Jen. I'm so happy to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm really delighted. And I have to say, as I read your bio, your bio completely reminds me of one of my favorite mentors when I was in seminary, who was a conflict resolution specialist. And um, his name was Jerry Handspicker. He's on the other side now. But Jerry had sort of a similar, like deep level of enthusiasm for bringing people together and, and just resolving conflict. But before we go into boundaries and conflict resolution and all of this stuff, I would love for the audience, my audience to know a little bit more about you. So tell us about you. Tell us about like, what was life like? Like, what made you decide you know, so what was the thing that inspired you to want to go into this powerful field? I'm not sure that I can actually answer the question about what inspired me to go into this field in a direct way, because as so many things in life, it evolved. And I knew since I was a very small child, I had a, when I was a small child, I often communicated with something outside of myself, got information, got guidance. It sometimes sounded like a man's voice up near my right shoulder. Other times it just was a very strong thought that I knew was a message from outside of myself. So at one point in time, when I was about four or five years old, I was sitting under a tree, leaning against my German shepherd, and all of a sudden, my heart rate just soared, and I had this moment of panic, oh my God, I've got to get it right this time. And I had no idea what any of that meant. It was just, I've got to get it right this time. And so I thought, okay, what do I do with that? 
I think that means I need to figure out how I'm supposed to live my life, what my mission is. And I, it was, I was four or five at the time, so it wasn't quite those words, but it was like what I'm supposed to do. And so along the way, as I was trying to figure that out, I would watch other people and I would watch what was happening and what struck me the most. And it was when people were in pain, especially emotional, psychological pain, that I felt the greatest sense of urgency to act. So I concluded from that that I was put here to help people make their pain go away. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll be a doctor and studied psychology as my undergrad, planning to be a pediatrician. And along the way, it never felt quite right. I'm glad I went through that course of study. The information was very important, but allopathic medicine was not my path. My that path is, had to do. Go ahead. I was going to say that is very, very understandable. I, you know, I definitely run into people where they started on the path of allopathic and being involved in it suddenly realized this is not for me. Well, exactly. And I also, part of the reason I realized that it was not for me, and this ties into the topic of your work, is that I wasn't comfortable with the idea of complying to, with what allopathic medicine told me I had to do. If a mm. person presented this symptom, I prescribed this medication or I removed this part of their body or, you know, whatever allopathic medicine uh, prescribed us to do. And my intuition, my guidance, that voice was telling me that they needed something else. Mm -hmm. And so I started studying all different kinds of what we call alternative medicine, which is really, in my mind, original medicine. Oh, what and a beautiful way to describe it. Thank you. Yes. And yeah. so I, I studied Reiki and I studied herbology and Ayurvedic medicine and just as many tools as I could find. And then I would work with people and help get them to help me understand what was going on for them. Some of it was discerned through their words, other th others through my intuition and my guidance. And then I would offer them whatever remedy came to me. My spiritual guidance was that I was not able to demand compensation for that work. I could receive compensation, but I could not demand it. And part of the reason for that was to help people understand the importance of finding their own way to bring things into balance. As ye give, so must ye receive. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with money. And you can give a person all kinds of money. It may not bring into energetic balance that which they have given you. So that was all part of what I had to do. I had to say to people, you need to figure out what the value is of what I have done for you. And you need to bring that into balance in whatever way your guidance tells you. And it might be by giving me something in return. It might be by paying it forward. You follow your guidance. I trust it. And but that was very confusing to people. And of course, it also didn't help me pay the bills. So then I prayed and prayed and prayed. And I said to the universe, please give me something that is on my path for which I can ask for compensation and be specific and have it be monetary <laughs> so I can live in this material world. And the guidance that came to me was mediation, that peacemaking was, and this is the beautiful thing about it, that peacemaking is one of the most powerful healing arts that there is. Because, and this is something one of my spiritual teachers taught me, when a person is out of, when a person is 
in a place of imbalance, of illness, in conflict, those times of great upset physically, emotionally, or psychologically, that they are out of harmony. And that healing someone or helping someone to heal, we don't ever actually heal someone. They heal themselves. We facilitate to the best of our ability. We try to give them the tools. Right. Help them find the way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But true healing is a when balance, when harmony is restored between mind, body and soul. This is what my teacher taught me. And so looking at when a person is in conflict, they are out of balance mind, body, and soul. It affects us physically. It affects us emotionally. It affects us psychologically. It affects us spiritually when we are in conflict. And so helping people find their path to peace makes it a very powerful tool because it's very holistic. It it, uh, addresses the issue at all levels. So that's kind of the long answer to your short question about how did I find my path? That's, uh, That's the synopsis of the journey. What a wonderful answer. And I I love how you started with acknowledging or recognizing at the age of five that you were here to do something important. And also how you were already being connected with spirit and receiving guidance and receiving information. I feel like we could go down an entire rabbit hole, and I don't necessarily want to do this, about, about the idea of compensation and you know, and how confusing it is to basically say, well, offerings to the, you know, I used to, when I was first tattooing and learning how to do it, I would say to people, offerings to the priestess are graciously accepted. And again, it was sort of like, people didn't necessarily know what to do with that. And, you know, with like, because people are like, well, what should I pay you? And it's like, what you feel guided to do. You know, I know some people, I've heard stories of some people who that really works for them. It, um, I don't know, for me, I had enough of my own stuff about it that it was a little too confusing, but I love how you prayed and it led you to the awareness of mediation, but also where you are just saying something so vital here of how the work of restoring peace really is just some of the most important work we can possibly do. And I mean, I look at the world and I think, you know, yes, right now we've got some physical manifestations of like out of our control, you know, natural disasters. The There's like cyclones that are going through New Zealand right now as, the, as of the time of the recording of this. By the time this airs, hopefully that will not be the case. And currently we are looking at the impact of the of the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. But those are in some ways feel to me like more like the exception than the rule, because when I look at so much of the conflict in the world, it's completely human driven. It's all about our stuff and our inability to get along with each other. So I just love that you are called to do this really powerful work about helping people to come to peace. So let's talk about like, you know, how I guess I would imagine actually what comes to my mind is I know from my own personal experience that you can't necessarily give away what you don't have yourself. And so I'm imagining that there has been a journey for you to find your own inner peace before necessarily sharing it with the rest of the world. So 
I'd love to hear about like your personal relationship with inner peace before we go into your professional relationship with peace. Well, funny that you should ask that, Jen. You're probably going to be surprised by my answer. And that is that because of many, many things, including experiences that I had when I was a child, as well, I recognize now as picking up on other people's emotions and believing them to be my own, I was a rager from the time that I hit puberty about 11 years old until, well, I think probably into my late teens, early adulthood. And I had so much anger and I had no place to put it. And I raged. I was so cruel to my mother. I was so cruel to my younger brother. I I had so much angry energy. And as I said, no place to put it. And therapy didn't work because the people they sent me to, number one, didn't keep it, didn't keep our conversations confidential because I was a child. And that was a profound violation for me, caused lifelong trust issues, but that's a whole other story. And they also were not tuned into me. It was like trying to connect with a brick wall or something. There just wasn't, you know what I'm talking about. That energetic I flow. Absolutely I, know what you're talking about. Yeah. And with the, some of the very first therapists I experienced, I had a very similar experience of just hitting a wall where it was like, this person does not get me. This person does not know who I am. And it just, it felt like going through the, the motions with something that was so utterly artificial. So I really, and mm-hmm. I just have to say, like, as you were talking about, you know, going to see somebody at and having them violate your boundaries. I mean, I, I just was like, oh no, they didn't. You're kidding. Like, no, that is just a whole bag of wrong. Just so, so wrong. So mm-hmm. um you also I want to pull one other thing out that you said that I really want to draw out, which is that because this is something I have found to be true with so many sensitive people is that you were experiencing all this rage, you were absorbing all this rage coming from the outside world, but like so many empaths, you thought it was yours, like you thought all of it was yours. And I've just seen this again and again, is that we so frequently will pick things up, but we don't necessarily know that we're picking it up and we own it as if it's all ours. So I heard you say that, and that's just something that... I have found to be consistent. And what I find is that if you think it's all yours, it's very hard to process it when it's actually something that needs to be put down and let go of. Exactly. And you can't process out something that doesn't have an origin within you. And so when it's coming from someone else, there really isn't a way to process it out. And so it was very helpful to me when I had that recognition that, oh, some of this doesn't belong to me. Yes, I do have a whole lot to be angry about. And yes, I do not know what to do with it. But not all of this is mine. And then to have that aha moment followed by the recognition that if I really work to discipline myself, that I would be able to recognize what was mine and what was not mine and learn how to recognize when the voices that I hear are 
divine guidance, my ego, <laughs> my imagination, any number of things. But you get to learn. This is what I often tell people. You have to listen to, I call them voices. I'm not delusional. I know you know that. I call them voices, the different kinds of guidances we get, wherever they come from, we have to recognize, we have to learn to recognize the different voices or the different frequencies, just like we recognize different people's voices. And we recognize this is coming from inside of me. Oh, this is coming from outside of me. This is coming from a place of wisdom. This is coming from a place of fear. Those yes. kinds of things. And I'm guessing that probably resonates pretty strongly oh, with you in your experience. You're speaking, I mean, you're speaking my language. You are absolutely everything you are talking about is chapter mm -hmm. is is like the recognized chapter in empathic mastery. Everything you are saying, it's like it's it's like mm -hmm. this is almost verb, it's almost like um verbatim the way I would even say some of this of like what is mine what is not mine what is my fear what is my ego what is divinely inspired what is just absorbing somebody else's stuff and I love right? love love I love that you are saying that you can't process the stuff that's not yours because I see so frequently in this kind of personal responsibility, we create our own reality, take it, you know, like kind of the, the, the sort of, I don't know, new age way of looking at things that everything is about us. Everything is our mindset. And I think the thing is that it does not acknowledge that sometimes it's not ours and that, and that when that is the case, it is very, it is like you will bang your head against a wall a million times if you are trying to process somebody else's stuff. Thank so, you. Mm -hmm. so I, I, yeah, I'm just getting chills as I'm just thinking about it because this, I think that this is such an incredibly important part of it is owning our things but not owning the stuff that's not ours. Yes, yes. Yeah. Thank you. And that that should be a bumper sticker. That should be a T-shirt. You know, it should say, own your stuff, but you don't have to own what's not yours. Exactly. You do not have to take on mm -hmm. every other burden. And I know for so many of us who are highly sensitive and empath, empaths, that it is so common for us to feel responsible for burdens that are so beyond us. And... Yeah. All it does is deplete us, make us miserable, make us filled with rage, filled with fear, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, yeah. I resonate so deeply with what you're saying, because, yes, yeah, sometimes that's been the greatest source of my own personal agony is feeling what other people are feeling and feeling as though I and believing, not feeling, but believing that I have responsibility for that, for making that okay, you know, and especially when I recognize that my mission is to help people find their way out of their pain. And then all of a sudden, especially in my immaturity, there was, and that combined with what I was picking up from people was a huge burden. Oh my God, I've got to make it okay for everybody. And we can't do that, of mm -mm. course. Mm -mm. And it was such a relief to realize that that was okay. And you know, I know from my own personal work and with working with and talking to so many other empaths that we don't necessarily just switch, you know, like flick a switch and go from taking on the taking on the responsibility and the burdens of, of the agony of the world 
to suddenly just being like, it's okay for me to let this go. I'd love to hear a little bit more about, or a lot more about your journey, your process of really coming to know that it was not, you did not have to carry this because I think I see a lot of us struggle with that. Like a lot of us, like intellectually, we might understand it, but there's still that part of us that like gets sucked into the people pleasing, the caregiving, the putting out the fires, taking on other people's emergencies. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, but so I'd love to hear like, what was that journey for you? of of divesting of all of this other other stuff. Mm. Well, I'm not sure that it's a journey that's over. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that... as long as you're in a human body, it's a journey that will ever be over. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's something that I I find myself facing quite often. But I think in my young adulthood in my early 30s, I was so wrapped up in what I call my Mighty Mouse Syndrome, which is, you remember the Mighty Mouse cartoon, here, here I, I to come the to save the day. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And I, I still have that. I'm, I'm more mindful of it. I know how to work with it better. It's one of those ongoing things. But at that time, in my late 20s, early 30s, I was so wrapped up in it that I was not taking good care of myself because I'd be out in the middle of the night trying to rescue somebody from something or another. So I wasn't sleeping well. I was giving away my money and my possessions, which is perfectly fine. And I believe a beautiful thing to do as long as one is still able to feed and house and clothe oneself. Yes. I ended up volunteering and serving and and all of that to such a great degree that I I say and I mean it, that I volunteered myself into bankruptcy. And Mm -hmm. I was, I got myself into a very serious financial situation because I was giving everything that I brought in, I would give it to someone else who needed it more. And that felt good at one level. I was not recognizing that I was being somewhat self-destructive in that. And it was actually one of my teachers who just sat me down and and just said, Kathleen, you are draining yourself beyond dry and you are reaching the place where you can no longer serve people. You are going to have to go into rescue Kathleen mode. And while you're in rescue Kathleen mode, you will not be helping other people. So once you get out of rescue Kathleen mode, you need to find a balance where you can take care of yourself to the level that you are better able to take care of others. And mm-hmm. and also to recognize when you are being of service and when you are enabling or when you are feeding mm-hmm. someone else's codependence. Because in your efforts sometimes to give, this teacher told me in this in your efforts to give and to heal, you are sometimes crippling people. And that mm. blew me away, broke my heart, brings tears to my eyes as I say it now. Yeah. That in my efforts to do good, I was actually doing harm. Oh, yes. my goodness. And and it hurt me more that I was doing harm to others than that I was doing harm to myself. Yes. It's still an area I need to work on, right? And I now recognize, as he told me, that if I want to be of service, I have to be of service first to myself and my own well-being, and then I have even more. Exactly, exactly. 
Yeah. Well, and you know, I mean, nowadays it's become really, we, we hear that analogy of put your own oxygen mask on first and, or as my friend, as my friend Chase would say, put your own fucking oxygen mask on first. But, you know, we, we, so we, you know, we hear that. And yet I think it is such an incredibly hard one lesson for so many of us because we live in a culture that is so externally focused most of the time that it can be, we can really get lost in it. You know, as you spoke about like giving, giving to the point of bankruptcy, like you volunteered to the point of bankruptcy, I was thinking how animal rescue is an organ is an area where I see this so frequently. And I did a podcast in the last season with my friend Britt, who runs an animal rescue, where we talked about the tendency of people in that field to give to the point of depletion and how often there is just because in animal rescue, there is always another emergency. There is always another $8,000, $20,000 surgery. There's always going to be something that has a greater, that has a need. And it, Mm -hmm. it's so striking to see. And unlike humans where they have autonomy with animals, we can even say, well, they can't help it. We have to help them, help them. But it is such a, Mm -hmm interesting thing how so many of us get caught up in that that piece of not recognizing our needs or taking care of our own needs like I don't know like it's almost as if like I went through this process where I had this revelation a while back where I realized I was treating myself like a charitable organization but I did not have any fundraising department and what I realized uh-huh. is that charities give services to people who don't pay for them. But the reason that they can do that is because they have an entire infrastructure set up to receive financial compensation and support from other sources. And Great what metaphor. I've, yeah. what, you know, and what I've noticed with a lot of us who are sort of um, independent contractors, as it were, that we perceive ourselves or think that we're supposed to be functioning like a charity, but we are missing one piece of, you know, we're missing one of the arms of the organiz- of the process, which is that if the money is not coming from the people we are giving it to or giving the support to, then the money has to be coming or support resources have to be coming from some other location or some other way. And that was revelatory for me when I was like, yeah, you can't just keep on giving and giving and giving without depleting yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as my grandfather taught me, my grandfather was one of my biggest mentors. What he taught me is it's all about balance, everything in balance. And I had forgotten that lesson until my teacher brought to me this imbalance that I had gotten myself into. And, you know, as I was listening to you just now, Jen, I realized that what we're talking about right now segues right into the piece about boundaries. Yes. Because what we're talking about here is a boundary within ourselves first. Right. That was when I had to say, okay, here's how much I have to give before it is costing me too much. I have to, as you're pointing out, I have to be funneling energy in from other places to balance out what I'm giving out. But it's up to me to be mindful of 
those boundaries and also to recognize when I might be going out of balance in the opposite direction, taking in too much without giving enough. And that's what society programs us to do, in my opinion, is to take, 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 give as little as you can, take as much as you can. That's the American way. Forgive me, patriots, but that's what I see. And I don't see it as being anti-patriotic to or unpatriotic to say that. Society tells us, consume, consume, consume. Try not to give anything to anybody else. Don't be taken advantage of. So there's an opposite kind of imbalance there. And I think often people like you and I who are nurturers by nature, who are givers by nature, I think sometimes we unconsciously try to compensate for what society teaches us. You know, everybody's being taken from, oh, let me give you something because everybody's taking from you. Let me give you something. And then we get out of balance ourselves. What do you think about that? Oh, I am in such agreement with you about all of this. And, you know, it's funny. I don't necessarily think about or um, think of the aspect of American consumerism as patriotism, as much as I see it as the shift from patriotism and looking in terms of community effort as a culture and a, and a society to sort of the shifting over to corporations or people too, that happened in the 80s. And, you know, I mean, I know for myself, I feel like our country really shifted Somewhere between the 70s and the 80s, and, you know, I'll name it with the Reagan administration, that it feels to me like we really started to make the transition away from the idea of the collective good, you know, and the and the idea of working for a greater idea or vision to the he who has the most toys wins. And recently I was reading something this man who I follow, who's into rewilding and really being like really being back to the land was talking about the phenomenon, even of how we are made as human, as bodies, as mammals, we are made to live on this earth, consume what is, you know, our daily bread, and then go die and give our bodies back to the earth to replenish it, to feed it, to nourish it. And yet between all of the embalming fluids and the things that happen or the tendency now for so many people to be cremated, there is this way in which even the equation, like the the sort of the, the natural order of things has been kind of pulled out of balance. And I think that what you and I are talking about is this sense of there is there is a, an incredible disproportionate relationship. There is the reciprocity on this planet is out of balance right now. And some of us are feeling it. And I think, like you said, have this incredible desire to compensate for this imbalance by giving and giving and giving. So everything yeah. you're saying, I'm just like Kathleen preach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So boundaries. Yeah. Talking about our Mm -hmm. personal boundaries and like, as you were saying, this is segueing into this of recognizing what can we give? What can we what what can we afford to give? What we can we not afford to give? But also recognizing when are we slipping into the other side of it where we are are where we we really are consuming too much and not not giving enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think for me. 
one of the very first understandings we need to have or skills that we need to have is to learn to recognize what balance feels like. And that's, again, sort of tuning into a frequency. But there's a certain, if we pay close attention, there are degrees of rightness that we will feel. For me, it's a it's a kind of a, a sense in my gut. It's the only way that I can really describe it. When something feels right in my gut, it's almost like putting on an old pair of moccasins or your softest favorite pair of pajamas. It just feels right. It feels comfortable. It feels serene. And then there are varying degrees of discomfort from there that tell me something's not quite right. Some And first thing to check is, you know, is this a matter of something being out of balance or is it that there's a threat that I'm perceiving on the periphery? You know, what is, what's the nature of something's not right? And when I discern that the nature of that sense that something's not right is that something is out of balance, then I sort of begin to look around me, look at what I'm doing, look at what I'm saying, look at what I'm feeling, look at how people are reacting to me or the people around me are reacting to other things and start to see if I can discern where out of balance is. And sometimes where out of balance is something that directly affects me and sometimes it's something outside of me. But recognizing where am I getting that sense from? Does that resonate yeah, with and your I was, experience as well? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I was thinking my metaphor would be, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of there are those times where you lie down in bed and you are, it is perfect. It's like the pillow feels perfect. The way your back feels or your body feels in the bed feels perfect. Everything is right. The temperature is right. It's all good. And then there are these other times where it's like, no matter what you do, no matter how you try to move the pillow, no matter how many times you kick the blankets or fluff them, it's not quite right. And so for me, that knowing what it feels like to be in that state of just pure ease versus what it's like to be in that state of fretfulness or quite not quite right. I was thinking as you were speaking, I would love to hear like a concrete example of like a scenario, a situation that you've experienced, or maybe you could make one up, but where you could lead us through this process of like when you, you know, so maybe starting with recognizing that something feels out of sorts or feels a little bit wonky or a little bit of out of balance, like, or do you even just before that, I mean, I guess, do you just, do you always assess for balance? But I'm just thinking, I'd love to hear, like, what is your process with this? I think that the very first thing is to strive to always be in a state of mindfulness. We go through life acting all the time. You know, I, I get up and I, you know, I'm, oh, alarm went off. I get up, I go, you know, go to the bathroom. I go to the kitchen, make my coffee, whatever it is. We just do those things. And they are habitual actions without thought. And we don't often stop when we first wake up and just take a breath and welcome ourselves back into the physical world and ask ourselves, how do I feel in this moment? What's my body feeling like? Do a check-in. How's my emotion waking up? Sometimes I wake up with strong emotions and 
often, if we're not mindful, we just begin the day acting from those emotions, anger, hurt, fear, whatever that strong emotion is that we wake up, we're just, I got up on the wrong side of the bed, we say. (laughs) And the rest of the day, everybody gets to experience that because we are just in it. We are acting on it as opposed to taking that breath when we first wake up and checking in. How am I feeling? What am I feeling? Where is it coming from? Whatever I'm feeling. And then when we feel ready, maybe at that point, am I ready to get up and get out of bed? Or Mm. do I need to take some more? Do I need to take some more deep breaths? Do I Mm -hmm. need to meditate before I get out of bed? What do I need to enter the day mindfully? So from the very moment we wake up, if we do that, then we are less likely to lose our keys, stub our toe, slip on the bar of soap, whatever it is, put on mismatched boots. I did that once um, on my way to a conference where I was presenting. I put on mismatched boots. Um, <laughs> that's a whole other story, but yeah. it's an example of what it happens yeah. when we're not mindful because I was already I was already at the place where I was going to present in my head. In your head, yep. But I hadn't finished dressing yet. Uh Uh-huh. And so, you know, so this is just an example of what happens when we're not being mindful. And of course, we're always in varying states of mindfulness. Yes. When we are mindful, though, is when we will be more able to recognize that "Mm, something's not quite right. Yeah. And... It feels, we were talking about what it feels like when things feel like, you know, right, that warm Mm -hmm. bed that you were talking about, that comfortable pair of pajamas I was talking about. When something doesn't feel right, it's almost Mm -hmm. like a a rock in your shoe Mm -hmm. or or something that's too tight, you know, and, and it just feels uncomfortable. And at that moment, when we recognize that, it's important for us to then tune into, as I was mentioning before, where is this coming from? What doesn't right. feel right? But right. so often if we are not mindful and we don't recognize that, oh, there's something hurting me in the bottom of my shoe, then that little niggly pain, that little something not right makes us cranky and edgy. Mm-hmm. And then we bark at other people mm-hmm. and we end up feeding the imbalance mm-hmm. because we haven't recognized that the imbalance is there in the first place. We just, something doesn't feel good. So now I'm cranky and I'm going to share my not goodness with the world or my not feeling goodness with the world. So the more that we're mindful and we say, oh, mm, something's, hmm, what's going on? Oh, got a rock in my shoe and I'm going to sit down and not try to balance on one leg while I pull that rock out of my shoe. I'm going to sit down and be centered and so forth. Yes. And so I think that all of that is what's so important to find that sense of what's out of balance. So then we can figure out how to bring it back into balance. Oh, so just everything you're saying. And, you know, you reminded me of how one of the things I realized is that I think our culture and part of this whole, you know, consumer culture, uh, which you have to be disconnected from the whole in order to continuously consume, I think like you and and hmm. part of what causes us to want to continuously consume is feeling disconnected. But I think about like the ways that we are so socialized to ignore little discomforts. 
um, you know, ignoring and and I've asked myself this and and I've taught this before, but this idea of like how many times do you ignore the urge to go to the bathroom when it when you notice that you just need to pee? Like how many times mm-hmm. do you notice that you're either feeling a little too hot or a little too cold, but you will not take off the sweater or put one on? How many times mm-hmm. do you notice that you're hungry, but you just are like, okay, I'll deal with it later? Or how many times do you notice that you're tired, but just kind of like drink a cup of coffee or keep going? And I think that we are constantly like ignoring these little tiny, I don't know, these nicks of, you know, these tiny little barbs of discomfort and just kind of kicking the can down the road. And like you said, it puts us, it does make us cranky. It does cause us to be less mindful because how can you be mindful if you are ignoring this rock in your shoe. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's an example of how absence of mindfulness uh, spreads and deepens and grows just like mindfulness will when we begin to do our mindfulness practices. And this also ties in so much to boundaries because the more we become aware of where balance is, And what takes us out of balance, the more we can define for ourselves what boundaries we need in place in terms of what we choose to do or not do, what we choose to bring into our life or not. And so many times people think boundaries are about what we impose on others to Mm -hmm. make them do something. Mm -hmm. And boundaries isn't Mm -hmm. about that. Boundaries Mm -hmm. is about what are we creating in our reality, what are we willing to let in and what are we not willing to let in? And the more we become mindful of where balance is, what feels right for us, the more we can recognize what it is that takes us in the wrong direction. What is it that brings me off balance? For me, for example, I find that loud noise takes me out of balance. Loud noise Um, brings up all different kinds of emotions in me, just depending. Crowds of people take me out of balance for varying reasons, among them being that I'm picking up too much from too many people all at once. And I have to, I have to have a boundary about what, what I let in energetically, right? I know, you know, this, I am just nodding my head. I know exactly. (laughs) Both loud noises and crowds. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And so we recognize those things and then we can also recognize, oh, what brings me back into balance? Silence, long silence for me, certain kinds of musical tones for me, but not any kind of music, certain mm-hmm. kinds mm-hmm. So we. So all of that is about what do I bring in and what do I leave on the other side of that boundary? And then the same thing goes with people. And interesting, though, that. In my personal world, I very rarely deal with angry people in my world that are angry at me because I live a very peaceful world and I try to be mindful of relationships and honoring people and all of those things and mindful conscious communication. And yet my profession is dealing with people who are in conflict. And it's a big part of what I do, whether it's individuals or groups that are in conflict. And so 
that's a different kind of boundary for me to be able to honor their anger at one another or at whatever the situation is that we're working through and not try to repress it, not try to deny it or diminish it because it's not mine, but also not taking it on because it is not mine. And but holding the space, we call it, to honor that here's where you are and it's a place where you're not happy and we're going to work together to help find that place where you can all be happy and at peace with one another. But I notice that energetically, emotionally, I have to be very mindful of the emotional boundaries that I need to have for myself so that I'm not taking their anger on. Nor am I, as I said before, diminishing its importance to them. Yes. Well, and I think that you're saying something so incredibly important here, because I think that so often as a culture, we are so reactive to anger and so afraid of anger that we will often try to rush into rescue, try to diminish it, try to fix it, try to make it better. And yet what ultimately needs to happen is that space needs to be held for people to have that anger, to be able to express that anger, to be able to be heard and acknowledged without us then going into that thing of, as you were saying, not taking it on, not absorbing it, not finding ourselves just spinning out as a result of it. The other thing I just want to pull back out that you said, because it's so powerful and I think so incredibly important is that boundaries are not about what we will tell another person to do or not do. It's not about you shall behave this way. It's about what we say. It's what our limits are. And a really great explanation that I ran across was like, it's not telling somebody you will not be this way or you will you will not be angry. It's saying, if you do this, these are the consequences. This is how I will respond to this. It's not, this is what you have to do to make me happy. It's if, you know, this is what I will do to protect myself. Knock yourself out if you want to continue down this path. But I just, I, and so I just really wanted to pull that out of your comment about boundaries are about us and about us setting those boundaries and our recognizing the boundaries, not necessarily imposing um, a rules on another person. Exactly. It's, this is what is allowable in my environment. And, yeah. and if you, if you need to be otherwise, by all means, go find another environment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It just won't be mine or I'll right. go find another environment. Um, so yes. And the important thing too about anger that I think we really need to recognize, and this goes into conflict too, is that anger is not a bad thing. Conflict mm -hmm. is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. They are symptoms, just like pain. Pain is not a bad thing. We think pain is a bad thing because it hurts, <laughs> mm -hmm. but it's telling us that something isn't right. And when we get those signals, we are driven to want to find what, or we should be driven to find what will make that experience stop. So if we felt no pain, we would burn our finger off in the candle. We would destroy our body if we felt no pain, because pain tells us we can't hold a flame, even though it's really pretty and shiny, we can't hold it because it will destroy our flesh. Pain tells us that, right? 
when someone is repeatedly causing us pain, that tells us this person doesn't belong in my life if I want well-being. If I don't mm-hmm. want well-being, hey, come on, keep on hurting me. But if right. my goal is well-being, this pain is just telling me something's not right here. Either it's the person or it's the dynamic with the person. Yes. And we can change one or we can change whether we can change our relationship to that person, mm-hmm. go away, or we can work to change our dynamic with the person so that they can stay in our life and have it work. So anger, hurt, pain, conflict, all of those things are just saying something's not working. And I tell people this at the beginning of every mediation. This is not about right and wrong. This is not about who's good and who's bad, who's right, who's wrong, who did what, who didn't do what. This is about something's not working for you. Mm-hmm. And these painful emotions, these dynamics that you've described to me are telling you something's not working. Mm-hmm. And if you'd like for this experience to change, then let's look at what would work better and see if we can negotiate agreements to what would work better. Mm-hmm. And it's the same kind of thing, I think, with our personal boundaries, that when we feel somebody's pushed up against our boundaries and we're angry at someone for that, it's just saying Something's not working in this dynamic. Can we sit down and negotiate that through or do we need to part ways so that the friction stops? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we just need to take enough space to, you know, take a pause so that we can actually reconnect with ourselves and find out what our truth is. So, it, you know, but sometimes just Mm -hmm. stepping away enough to know what it is, is just so important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kathleen, I cannot believe how fast the time has gone with this particular conversation. It just, it's amazing. Um, And one of the things that I really wanted to pull out before we kind of go into our wrap up, you know, pieces is um, a piece Mm -hmm. that you mentioned in, you know, that you had written about was clarifying questions, the importance of clarifying Mm -hmm. questions you know, and I, I guess sort of the other side of it is when we don't make clarifying questions, how assumption and sort of the narrative in our head can really be driving the conflict. But um, I definitely wanted to take a minute to talk about the importance of curiosity and clarifying questions. Well, here's the interesting thing, and I'm so glad you brought this up, Jen, because one of the phenomenons of the human mind that we often forget or just aren't aware of is that the brain requires a feeling of having all the information in order for us to feel safe and satisfied in the absence of that information, because we may feel nervous about doing it or it doesn't feel socially acceptable. We very rarely ask for the missing information. We first write a story in our head, right? We make assumptions in the absence of information. And so it's like, if you think about it, when somebody sends an email to someone that they usually get a quick response from, and then they don't, and they think to themselves, why didn't they, why haven't they written me back? Oh, I'll bet I know. And they're off and they start writing stories. They don't text the person or call them and say, hey, how come you didn't answer my email? They just start writing stories in their head. Mm -hmm. And the more tension there might be in the dynamic or the less fondness that there might be in the dynamic, the more negative those stories are going to be. So we write those stories in our head and we make those assumptions and then we often act on them. 
we anchor ourselves, this is the truth. And that helps us feel more safe and secure if we question our assumptions, if we question our beliefs and we find them to be off target, not quite right on, then that causes us to question all of our other beliefs. And that's a terrifying place to go. Mm -hmm. So we don't go there. And there's there's actually a psychological phenomenon called confirmation bias. Yes. Where we look for that which confirms what we believe rather yes. than noticing the things that do not. Right. So we make these assumptions. We write these stories in our head. And that is one of the primary causes of conflict and misunderstandings. If instead we take the time to step out of ourselves and go into what I call the neutral observer mode and start to look at what we're thinking, we'll may begin to recognize that there might be something more there. The Iroquois rule of six, I have to interject this right now. The Iroquois Please. rule of six comes into play here. The Iroquois rule, the Iroquois people were amongst the most savage of the warriors in history. When the time came when their elders decided that it was time to live in peace, that they created these rules of peace. And one of them is the rule of six. The rule of six says for everything you observe, look for six different explanations before mm. deciding on one. Mm. So if we apply the Iroquois rule of six, every single time we say, I'll bet I know. Oh, wait, we've got to come up with five more. Yes. Six. And yes. then... I have added on Awigon's rule of the seventh rule, which is after you look for six different explanations before deciding on one, then go ask a clarifying question. Yes. Before you even decide on one, ask a clarifying question. Go to the person and say, and it's always nice to help them feel safe by saying, help me understand. And doing that with an inviting, inquiring tone of voice, not a help me understand, yeah. like justify yourself, but instead. What the hell were you thinking? <laughs> right. Right. But instead, help me, under help me understand what help your me thoughts understand. were in that yeah. moment. Yeah. yeah. Rather than what were you thinking? What right. were your thoughts in that moment? Yeah. And uh, clarifying questions are questions that are what we call open-ended questions. They require more than a yes or no. Mm -hmm. Because a yes or no does not give you all the information. If you say to somebody, are you upset right now? And they say, yes. Okay, well, now you know they're upset, but you don't know why they're upset. Mm -hmm. If instead mm -hmm. you say, why am I feeling what I'm feeling from you right now? Mm -hmm. Or what is it that I'm feeling from you right now? Yeah. Or what's going on for you right now? Those are open-ended questions that give you the information then they might say i'm upset or they might say oh i'm just agitated because i'm late or you know but you get information when you ask open-ended clarifying questions and we find that more often than not when we don't ask any questions at all no matter how empathic we are we are going to have some aspect of our the imagine the information in our head being inaccurate yes Absolutely. We will get a greater, more accurate body of information if we ask those open-ended clarifying questions. And that eliminates those assumptions that gives us a wide range of, of information and it helps the other person feel valued mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. we're assuming about them. We're not saying, I know what right. you're thinking. I right. know what you're going to say. Right? right. We're saying... Help me understand what you want me to hear. 
Help and me then understand. they feel valued, yeah. right? And we feel connected. Well, and this goes into, I mean, I could go, we could go on to an entire, like do an entire episode about, you know, healers agendas and, yeah. you know, and just the whole thing of our culture's idea of like, what as a sensitive, intuitive person, we are somehow supposed to be doing. And I think there's this culture there's this old school idea of if i'm a really good gifted psychic or intuitive i'm not supposed to ask any questions and i find the longer i do the work the more i feel like my job is to help you find your answers my job is not to give you answers my job is to be curious and hold space right. for what is coming out of this and and knowing that right. like each of us has something inside of us that is preciously and uniquely ours, I try really hard not to make assumptions about what is going on for another person. And even if I might be accurate, even if I might be right, I've learned it's so important to give that person the space to find that truth for themselves without necessarily leading them to it. Because, you know, with a very, with a super heavy hand, well, yes. And I also just have to say that there's a difference, too, between observing and then writing a story in our head. Yes. So, so for example, when when someone is speaking in a really loud, angry tone of voice, I can write the story in my head. They're a jerk. I can write right. the story that they're angry at me. I can yeah. write these stories or I can notice this person's feeling high emotion right now. And just an observation. And so I think as as intuitives, too, we pick up these these senses and I think it's important for us to observe them. But again, maybe not necessarily write a story in our head about what's tied to what we're sensing. Right. But that that actually, in my mind, is all the more reason why we need to ask those questions to get more information from them about what this is that we're feeling. Yeah. And then we can exchange information based on what they're experiencing and we're experiencing and come to probably something that's going to be really darn close to their truth. Mm. Mm. Kathleen, we are getting to that point where we are yes, coming we in are. on the top of the hour and I could talk with you for hours. This conversation has been so delicious, so juice, just so, so good. I mean, you were just, you were Beacon, you are singing my song. You are singing words that resonate so deeply in my heart. So thank you so much. So before I let you thank go, you. I got a couple of questions for you. The first one is, what do you absolutely need to be sure you say before we finish this conversation? Believe in yourself. Tune into your higher guidance. Always stay in touch with the neutral observer within you. And embrace all that is for what it is. Believe in yourself. Thank you. Okay, so the next question that I always love to ask is, I really believe that there is a way that with podcasts, time almost is, you know, they become evergreen. They exist outside of time. And I believe that not only does this podcast exist from perpetuity in the future, but that the messages can ripple back into time. And so I would love to think about what message, if you could broadcast a message to your younger self, the self that was raging, the self that was really, really struggling, 
what message do you need? Do you want to tell her? What are you going to, you know, plant here and send back, like beam back to her so that she gets this message? Oh, you know, I think it would probably be the words that I just spoke in answer to your previous question, I have Mm. to say. And I would also say, don't forget that you are always connected to the divine. Don't forget. And I say that because it's connected. Go on. Yeah. Yeah. Always connected to the divine. Yeah. I remember in those days, part of what I raged about was that I felt so alone. Yes. And I think to remember that we are never alone. We are always connected to the divine. It is inside of us. It is. Oh, oh, Kathleen, this has been so yummy. So final, final question. How do people get in touch with you? Well, you can find me at my website, bridgesofpeace.com. And there are, there is another fabulous organization called Mm bridgesforpeace.com. And they're a great organization, but they're not me. I am bridgesofpeace.com. And on my website, you can find information about all the different personal and professional development trainings I have, my communication coaching, my facilitation and mediation services. And you can also find on the podcast page every episode of my podcast, Co-Creating Peace, which again, as Jennifer mentioned at the beginning, is all about conscious communication and conflict transformation. And I hope people will reach out to me. I'm one of those very accessible people. You can actually find my cell phone number on my website, and that's okay. I want to be connected. And um, I highly recommend checking out Kathleen's podcast. I had the privilege of being a guest on her podcast a while ago, and it was just wonderful, which is how we met. Kathleen, thank you so much for sharing your words of wisdom. Thank you so much for sharing your candor, your authenticity, your, your just like in your beautiful, beautiful soul. This has just been delicious. Thank you, Jennifer. It's been a privilege and an honor to be here with you and to have this kind of exchange. And I have to say, thank you for the amazing work that you're doing out there, having a resource for people who have the experiences that we have of being highly intuitive and empathic. It's so important because that's another time that we can feel alone on the journey and to know that there are such resources as you offer is such a blessing. So thanks for doing the work you do out there in the world, Jennifer. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, this has just been so good. I could stay forever. So I think we've said enough. You guys, if you are listening to this, you can head on over to empathicmasteryshow.com and find in the show notes for Kathleen's show links to her website, to her podcast, all of that stuff. So again, Kathleen, thank you so much. My honor, my privilege. Thank you. As we come to the end of this episode, I'd love to hear what you're taking from this show. Please jump over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com to leave your comments. In the show notes, you'll find a link to grab your copy of My Empathic Safety Guide, Three Basics for Finding Calm in the Eye of the Storm. And while you're there, please subscribe and follow this show. And thank you for your help sharing this show with the people who need it. Please help me to spread the word and send this podcast to friends or family members who need support living as highly sensitive empathic people. Then join me again when the next Empathic Mastery Show airs. Okay, one last time. 
Hop over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com for your empathic safety guide. And until next show, shine on. We need you and your gifts here on this planet. So please don't judge your empathic rainbow by colorblind standards.